Hi, welcome to the Proterra Connect podcast. I'm your host, Walid Siraj. In today's episode, we're joined by Tim Sedlek. Tim is the Director of Product Management at OpenText. Tim has a deep passion about delivering great products that make a difference. And he has the belief that products are supposed to make users' lives better. They should be intuitive and easy to use, and they should solve real-world problems. He communicates with customers from around the world to assist them in their efforts to keep private data private, regardless of the state or where it lives. In this episode, Barish Kavakli sits down to talk about his story, where he comes from, what gets him out of bed every day, and his passion for data privacy and security. You're listening to the Portera Connect podcast. Welcome, Tim. Lovely to have you here in the Netherlands. Uh, are you a little bit jet-lagged? Absolutely. You know, I landed yesterday, 9 o'clock in the morning, and I, I, I spent time with my colleague through 11 o'clock last night. And no sleep, so... Uh, just, just for the record, yesterday was Sunday. Sunday, yes. It was a sunny day in the Netherlands, so it that helps, beautiful. I think. It was beautiful. Oh, yes. my gosh. The, the city was fantastic. Uh, it was nice to get out and, and see people enjoying the canals and uh, just a beautiful country. Great to have you here. Uh, so uh, let's start, uh, let's get going in our podcast. So uh, I will start with uh, just one basic question, maybe the most difficult question that we try to answer ourselves. But who is Tim? How would you describe yourselves? How uh, would your friends describe you and family? Yeah, you're right. It's it's a difficult proposition to talk about yourself, but uh, I would say my family says that I am a, an avid traveler. Um, I do, I do like to, to travel and, and, and visit the local cultures and understand more of, you know, what drives people, you know, how are these cultural differences represented in the attitudes, the food, um, you know, what people do for fun and, it is different everywhere you go. You know, I, I lived in Germany for five years and, and really that was eye-opening for me being so insular in the United States and then moving to a European country for five years where I'm traveling around to all these different cultures and, and working with people and understanding the differences as I go from country to country. Um, so I really enjoy travel. I try to do it as much as possible. I feel like I'm in the perfect role as the product manager for secure data. I get to come to the Netherlands and talk to customers that we have. I get to go to Zurich. I get to go to Japan, Australia, and it really is enjoyable to talk with people about how they're doing things today, where they see the the future, you know, the future of IT, the future of data security, the future of, of, technology in general. And I think my friends and family would say I'm an, an avid animal lover, um, always had dogs. Uh, and, you know, it was nice. My wife was anti-animal or animals are for outside in the barn. And um, since we've been married almost 25 years now, she has become like me, you know, she Got threw it. you out of the bed because yes, of the dogs. Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. So I've been living with, a, with two dogs actually for 20 years. Uh, we lost the second one uh, last year, uh, uh, one, and, one and a half year ago. 
uh, yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. I can I can relate to that. Yeah. So uh, tell us through with uh, about a little bit your journey towards today, because how did you start? I'd like to talk about the old times as well, when yeah. the technology was uh, quite yeah. Yeah, still exciting, but back then uh, there were a lot of huge developments. Uh, yeah. So talk us through that period. How did you start? What brought you to data security area? Sure. So long, long ago, I was uh, a programmer. And I actually wrote video games while I was in high school. And we're talking, you know, early 1980s. So technology wasn't really there. And there were three of us that, that wrote computer games. And we got to the point, you know, as a developer, you, you sit in front of a computer sometime for days on end. And I finally decided I don't ever want to see a computer again. And I joined the military. Okay. And When I joined the military, they saw I knew something about computers, so they put me in the computer field, <laughs> and I couldn't get away from computers, but it was fine. I spent four years in the military. I lived in Panama, and then um, I got out, and I tried to apply at Microsoft and couldn't get in, um, and I didn't understand why. And finally, um, I had a friend that was working in finance at Microsoft, and he recommended me. And they brought me in and went through interviews, and I uh, finally made it into the exchange team. So I worked on the exchange team for a couple of years, and then I moved over to... Which years are those? That was, uh, I came into Microsoft at 1995, <laughs> um, right before Windows 95 came out. Back then we had POP3, I think. We didn't have uh, Exchange, I think, right? Exchange servers uh, were was, just coming in, it uh, was, maybe. It was Microsoft Mail, okay. and we were converting to Exchange, which is uh. what they brought me in for. Um, so we we rolled out Exchange. I stayed on the Exchange team for a couple of years, and then I moved to Active Directory. So I was on Active Directory for a while, and that's when... Um, I got into operations management and worked for this company, NetIQ, um, that was eventually bought by MicroFocus. Um, so uh, I ran the products there, the operations products for a long time, um, 13 years of, of driving operations product. Uh, and then I moved over to identity and access management. Um, and that was around the time that MicroFocus bought NetIQ. Uh, and incorporated it all. Um, so I was on the IAM team. Um, and then I spread my wings and went out to a few other companies. Um, I won't mention any of them, um, but other identity and access management. And then I moved into uh, data governance at uh, one of these software companies. Year? Nine, uh, 2008. 2008 to 2010, I It's ran. It's quite early in the data governance uh, yeah. field to be in, I think. Well, it was a lot of manual processes at the time. You know, here's your attestation report, sign off on it, you know, validate. And and that was the big driver is attestation. And um, it, was, it was interesting. And what was interesting to me is at the time, I had developers who really wanted to move to the cloud. And I was saying, oh, there's not a lot in the cloud, let's not do it. And, you know, we came up with this engine that would go through documents, identify personally identifiable information, tell you what was in it, and we never launched but, it. But, but why? Uh, not, not that why you didn't launch it, but back then, personally, the PII was not that topic at all. It was for things like legal hold, 
or e-discovery. And that tended to be where we sold and what we were thinking about with, you know, data governance. So, you know, there wasn't a huge amount of call for it, but these developers were very prescient in saying, you know, what about things in the cloud? Nobody's doing these things in the cloud. And we, we did a prototype, we demonstrated it. The management at the time thought, this isn't a good area for us to invest in. And I thought if we would have done that at that time, we could have, we could have captured a corner of the market. Yeah, we all want to be in that uh, yeah. movie, right? Back yeah. to the Future. Exactly. So with that almanac, yeah. and we go to 1980. Yeah. So that is, uh, yeah, retrospectively uh, yeah. looking at things might, uh, might uh, make you feel pain, but at the same time, uh, see the opportunities that are lay- lying ahead. Right. So that is, that is what we need to learn from that. Okay, yeah. so uh, let's move a little bit uh, towards the data privacy area, which sure. you are currently working on, uh, because... I think data privacy is a common became a top, common topic when GDPR talks have started basically yeah. because then back then it was not it was before like you said more squeezed into the legal area but then or security area but then it became important for everybody everybody using uh, social platforms yeah. digital technologies it became uh, for everybody it's important but why does it matter in terms of uh, from your point perspective why does it matter to have data privacy regulations data privacy systems why is it important Uh, from the regulatory perspective, it's important that... From a consumer perspective, from a user perspective, why uh, privacy matters? Why do I need to care about my data privacy? How would you put it? It's important that you understand that the more that your data gets out there, your personal information, and, and it, it may seem innocuous, but knowing that you have two children is a data point that people will take into analyze and make business decisions on. Um, and from the computer, from the consumer perspective, it's, it's really important to maintain your identity so that it can't be used in ways you don't intend it to use. So it's, it's about identity protection. It's about, the data that you use and how you use it. And you don't want people misusing that. Um, You don't want people um, taking your data and um, using it in ways that could harm you down the line. Your credit rating, um, places you've you've been, you know, are you traveling? Just even the the simplest of, hey, I'm going on vacation, if that's published as an out of office thing and somebody sends you something and you get an external mail saying, Tim's gonna be away from home traveling in Europe for the next two weeks, that's the perfect time to raid his house and steal all his computers. <laughs> so I think um If I if I go to my neighborhood, for example, uh, my butcher butcher knows uh, what kind of meat I like. My mm-hmm. hairdresser knows how do I want uh, my hair to be. Right. Uh, if I go to the market, if uh, yeah, that vegetables that I buy, he knows what kind of vegetables that I like. But uh, and if I get to my closer circle, inner circle, yeah. the more inner circle you go to, the more knowledge points they collect. My wife knows almost everything about me. Uh, but there are two things. One of them is the individual knowledge about specific things of a person. Right. And then you can have personalization based on that. Hey, Barish, welcome. Would you like the same meat like you had last week? And that is 
fine. Yeah. But if they start to connect with each other behind the scenes and try to uh, share information about you behind the scenes, right. then it is becomes becoming scary. Yeah. And at the same time, although scientifically proven, proven otherwise that uh, women doesn't don't have that kind of uh, enormous um, mind capacity in terms of store uh, information which in practice actually it's the other way around they remember what they what you have done five years ago uh, and, and they <laughs> will hold you to <laughs> it exactly responsible for that but actually that is the limitation of a human mind as well in computer world we don't have that limitation right in terms of knowledge management i think yeah. that is becoming yeah that's making it more scary in our personal lives uh, right. if i may uh, if i move towards because you are the product manager in terms of data security and data privacy in yes. open text, uh, as we call it nowadays. Uh, what are the unique challenges you and your team face when dealing with this kind of issues? Because, for example, if you do, that is also like of operations or maintenance jobs. If you yeah. do your job well, nobody cares. But if there's a problem, if there's an issue, then everybody's eyes are on it. Right. So what are the usual challenges that you face in that area? So the, we face some common challenges and some unique challenges in data security. I would say that the common challenges or the ones that are more obvious tend to be, like you mentioned, GDPR, country-based regulations. Um, those sorts of things are, are very high level. And of course, we need to comply with the, the privacy laws in Netherlands when we work on customers within the Netherlands. Um, but there are, are other pieces that, that come into this discussion around protecting customer data, making sure that um, a, a company can protect their reputation. This has been a big discussion point lately um, of how can you help us keep us out of the news in negative ways. Uh, breaches, those sorts of things. Um, and, and one of the stories we tell around data protection is if you protect your data early, it doesn't matter if somebody gets your data. Of course, you don't want them to get your data, but what you really don't want them to get is the information underlying. So getting bits is not as critical as getting the information about Barish and his family and what he likes to do. Um, and you know, one of the, the challenges we have is, is work across all countries, um, make sure that we can quickly, easily define how we're protecting data so people get the understanding of what's happening with their data. And, you know, one of the things I, I talk about is seeing this growth. You know, I mentioned I, I was in Microsoft in 1995, Networks were very um, encircled, you know, you had your perimeter and things inside. Yes, we still had security inside, but the way data is pervasive now out to the cloud, through SaaS applications, through REST interfaces, really it's, it's kind of the wild west out there of where your data is going. And the best thing you can do for yourself is protect it early before it goes out somewhere. Um, and gets in somebody's hands that will negatively affect your reputation, will cause you to do extra work, will cause you to lose customers. Um, there, yeah. there really is a, a myriad of reasons that 
to protect your data early. You're totally right. What we what we've seen is in 2016 when the GDPR talks uh, were there, everybody was talking about the fines uh, about a data breach or something. And today, yeah, I think the top management of many companies would die for just getting a fine and get away with it uh, instead of that uh, reputation yeah. loss, reputational damage. So yeah. uh, nobody cares about the fines anymore. It is more about the, the yeah. reputational loss. Yeah, and also I think in the public in the public eyes also. That news are not shared uh, fairly. Uh, every breach is not, of course, every breach is a breach, but it's not that impactful. So right. we need to also classify and read uh, between the lines to understand what kind of things are happening yeah. there and what is how is it impacting the people. One other thing to add. So I've talked about, you know, what people will probably step back and say, well, those are obvious things. Yeah. Some of the things that aren't so obvious from a challenge perspective is working within cultures. So... There are countries that we go to that have an input language. Let's, let's pick Korea, for instance. Mm -hmm. Korea says, you know, here's Korean names, here's Korean addresses, here it is in, in our language. Um, we want to encrypt that to protect our customers' privacy. And what they want as output is Korean. And, you know, if, if we talk at a technical Unicode level, mm -hmm. um, a lot of encryption will just say, you know, I'll just take any characters, any input characters mm -hmm. and give you any output characters. But there are cultural reasons to not show Japanese characters when you right. encrypt yeah. Korean, not show Russian characters when you're encrypting in Ukrainian, for instance. So there are, there are a lot of those little challenges that we have that we have to think about in a worldwide basis and not just develop for the U.S. market and uh, a U.S.-based alphabet with U.S.-based output. Shall we move a little bit to the mindset challenges? Because I think uh, from a mindset perspective, um, I use the sentence, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know how much exposed uh, you are. Uh, in the Netherlands, I cannot remember the journalist's name, unfortunately, but a journalist actually paid an ethical hacker, hacker uh, to actually find who uh, she is, what does she do, that kind of information. Mm -hmm. uh, and the hacker was able to do it within one week. So really able to come to a level of stalking her and uh, finding out what uh, information she was giving out. Yeah. So we don't know what we don't know. I think from a mindset perspective, uh, we need to change that. Yeah. How do you see that challenge in the enterprises? Because not only on the end user's mindset, but in the enterprises, when you talk to the customer, when you talk to your clients or when you talk to prospects, mm -hmm. the reason I'm making that differentiation is customers probably from a mindset perspective, they're already almost there or yeah. a little bit more closer to yeah. where they need to be. But prospects are, you need to convince them, you need to increase their awareness. And uh, what do you see in their minds? How does it work? I think I benefited from being in identity and access management for the genesis of zero trust. Mm -hmm. Um, and discussing this with customers and understanding that you should never trust any process. You know, you always have to verify who is somebody. Should they get access to this data? You know, should they, should they see any data in the clear, whether it's a portion or, or all of it? And, and I would say this mindset I see coming to data security now. And, and this is my my flag that I'm waving is encrypt your data as early as you can. If you can 
encrypt your data on input, you know it's protected throughout its data lifecycle. If you don't encrypt it until it gets to the cloud, for instance, what happens if you have a, a bad internal actor or somebody unfortunately gets access to your to your network and is able to pull that out and you think well if they had just pulled it out of the analytics engine it would be encrypted and we don't have to worry about it so this zero trust mindset is coming to data security people are recognizing we generate a lot of data we share a lot of data it goes places we don't know where it's going to end up um, and it's not always with bad intent you know, you know, as you travel around to different customers, there's a need for you to take data with you and, and take it from place to place. Yeah. Um, and if it's protected, if it's, if it's secured with a password, if it's encrypted, um, you're a lot safer if you lose a USB key. Yeah. Uh, so I think this, this zero trust mindset for data security, you know, getting in early and often understanding what you have, protecting it, early and and making sure only people who should have access have access and always think that my data is going to get out at some point and I need to I need to protect it at all times okay thank you um may I say I think uh, in Gardner in last year if I'm not mistaken uh all microfocus voltage uh, was one of the leading providers can you specify well, uh, yeah, we just had, it was Forrester, actually. Okay, Forrester, Forrester did a data security platform review mm -hmm. of major competitors, and MicroFocus was one of them. Um, and you know, it's, it's like an RFP. You have to go through and answer every question, give technical details, and give a demonstration. Um, throughout this, we, it was about a six-month process, maybe three-month, three to six-month process somewhere in there, because different teams will handle it. Um, and when it comes to the product team, we make sure everything's technically correct and we feed it off to the marketing team to, to give to Forrester. After all the, the additions and subtractions and ratings, we came out on top and by quite a bit, actually. And what I'm very proud of is they rated us as a five, which is the top score for roadmap, for execution, for vision, so those things that you typically think of product management were right at the top. And it gave me a really good feeling that we're talking to the right customers. We're getting the right information from customers. We've got a good roadmap and a good explanation of how we're helping customers move to the future to protect their data in perpetuity. Which gives me the right to ask my following question, because as a leader in this industry at the end, yes. how do you see the future of uh, data privacy and uh, protection evolving? And what steps actually as open text you are willing to take? Of course, I'm not asking for any confidential information, but if you can give us some kind of uh, vision and North Star uh, where it needs to go, uh, that would help, I think, uh, us and the audience as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so certainly there are opportunities and challenges. And I will say one of the challenges we have is AI. You know, we, as, as these large language models accept input, one of the things we learned early, in, early on was customers felt empowered to take data and stick it up in these AI engines for processing. And what you get out might contain PII if you put up, you know, privacy information up into a, an AI engine. 
you might end up showing somebody some privacy data that you don't want. Um, so, you know, when I think about challenges, I think, uh, I think the, these large language models, AI, and its access to all data is something that we don't quite understand yet. And that makes me nervous. I wouldn't say it's, it's a huge danger, but it does make me nervous that data can be in those large language models and make its way out um, unintentionally. Um, but from a, a futures perspective, I definitely see some opportunities with things like confidential computing, for instance. So, um, you can think of confidential computing as this protected, uh, machine. Um, there's one way in and out, uh, a secure socket, and then everything's encrypted. The disk's encrypted, the memory's encrypted, and there's no one that, that can decrypt it. It's all built in that it's it's protected so even if machine you know blue screens for instance to use a microsoft term mm -hmm. even if machine blue screens and you see that memory data on screen it's all encrypted you can't get anything um, so i think that's an area that we see as something that we'll make use of in data security to customers benefits um, and of course the the expansion of of cloud and SaaS and rest interfaces means that data can travel and be used in ways that is is not like it used to be um, where you had commercial off-the-shelf software like Microsoft Office you know oh I, I have to you know be careful of what I put in the the document format but now that I have rest interfaces and I'm sharing that email information with uh, a word doc and an Excel doc and out to PDF and potentially out to other REST services, pulling things out of there. Um, we have to think about where your data goes, your data life cycle, how you can monitor use of that data and make sure that customers know, I'm always in control of my data. If data gets out, it's encrypted and, and give people the confidence that their data is, is managed and they don't have to worry if, if data gets out. Great, interesting. Really, it is it's giving the peace of uh, giving a peace of mind uh, for people. I think in in hardware, in computers, uh, I think both PCs and also Macs uh, mm -hmm. have succeeded in bringing in uh, automatic and behind the scenes a little bit encryption in most of the hard drives. It, you yeah. know, you can of course disable that, you can enable that, but sure. it is quite straightforward. It's not like you doing to yeah, you need to uh, consult to somebody else to yeah. be able to do it anymore. Yeah. Uh, but it needs to come to this kind of new models, new uh, AI services, which every day there are tens of hundreds of them are popping up and uh, yeah. you want to try it. You, right. want to, you have the formal fear of missing out yeah. if you don't try it and you yep. can just put in a client's uh, document there, yeah. which can cause a lot of trouble in the future. So. Yeah, this is the exact situation we had with ChatGPT yeah. where where somebody said, oh, well, it's asked, there's a financial model. Let me put my company's finances up into ChatGPT and say where we can improve. Yeah. But then that data is available to other people. Can be, <laughs> can yeah, be. in can some be. cases, yeah. yes. Okay, um, thanks a lot uh, for this answer as well. But if I look at it, because... Yeah, security and privacy is uh, an endless journey, I think, because I understand where you're coming from when you say you want to encrypt in the source, but 
overdoing it can also have some impacts when you want to run the business because there's data, you want to do analytics so that you can create insights to grow your business. And if somebody has encrypted it, you need to somehow decrypt it and try to use it. So there's always a compromise, I think, into this kind of uh, situations. And you cannot have a castle where you don't need that castle at the end. So how do you balance it, especially when it comes to your customers, when it comes to your clients, how do you balance this act actually, how much you need to increase the privacy and security of that platform, as well as enabling the business so that it can continue uh, the usual way of business? Yeah, this is a great question um, because, you know, encryption has been around for a long time. And what I've seen happening Um, to the benefit of the market and customers is we've gotten more and more discreet in what we're encrypting. Exactly what you you say, you know, hey, I can encrypt the whole drive. Um, But that's that's bad if you lose the key and you can't get to any of your files. Okay, well, I can encrypt a file. That's great. But what if I need a distinct piece of information in, in it? Let me find what's inside that file. That's really sensitive. Are there customer names? Are there national identifiers? Are there financial information? Is there other PII? And let's just protect that within the file. So we're protecting what should be private and allowing what should be public to be public. And, and Define the public. It's not at the end public to everybody, right. but public right. within that audience. Right, yes. right. Yeah, that, thank you. That, that helps clarify Um, But getting down to the discrete datum that you should protect is really um, the goal. We want to identify what should be protected, protect it quickly and easily, and give people access to it without um, adding additional steps. So I think like when we do file uh, file encryption or or, um, uh, compression, you know, you need you need um, a, a particular program to do that. You need an unzip program, you need something. And it, that is a barrier to encryption. It just needs to be invisible to the people using it. If you're supposed to see customer information, you should see the customer information. If you shouldn't, if you're in finance, you shouldn't see customer information, but you should see financial information. So as long as we can protect the discrete datum um, as invisibly as possible, we're doing a good job. Okay, so it is. It goes hand in hand with um, what need, what is sensitive, to what extent we need to um, encrypt it or remove it, maybe even in some cases, and uh, who has who should have access to that one. So these are the different questions that you ask when you are assessing a, uh, assessing a situation. Right. And then going on from that, what's happening with that data? Is it being exfiltrated? You know, even if it's encrypted, you still want to know my data left somewhere and that's unexpected and I should do something about that. So. Okay. Uh, Moving towards a little bit more on uh, sustainability goals, uh, because, um, yeah, can you tell me a little bit about OpenText? itself sustainability goals if there are uh, of course and also how you help your customers in terms of achieving their sustainability goals another great question because it's something we hear about from customers you know tell us tell us how you're helping me be more environmentally friendly um how i can be more green and 
we st- stepped back and took a look at our our entire data security platform, and what we see is we're minimizing the amount of data that's secure, identifying those lifecycle pieces where um, I have data that is probably outdated and I should get rid of it rather than maintain it. Um, let me maintain a single copy of privacy information um, encrypted so that I don't have to store over and over and over. And we have defined what we call green voltage, mm-hmm. um, helping people do data minimization to do um, uh, authorized deletion and validated deletion of data um, and encrypting, as I said, down to just the individual datum, if possible, of, of you know, data. So you're not spending a ton of compute cycles. You know, when we were talking about the, the bit locker or let me encrypt my whole drive and let me encrypt my, my file, of course, that has to be encrypted and decrypted. And there's compute cycles associated with that. So if you can minimize the amount of churn you have back and forth by not encrypting the entire file and only the privacy information, you, you're doing less work um, overall. And we've got a nice white paper on that that discusses green voltage and, and how we help customers save time, energy, and money. If we can link uh, to the podcast, I think it would be great. Oh, Thanks. Great. Thanks. I think it's a, it's a, uh, it is something that I think enterprises and all of the users have given the responsibility to the data center owners and uh, the sustainability should be done at the data centers. Microsoft was, I don't know what the situation of it was, uh, looking into undersea data centers so that they don't need to care about the cooling, that kind of stuff. Space as well. Space as well. I think it all started with... um, guy that created his uh, gaming computer in oil or something. I remember 20 years ago, I was reading about it. Uh, maybe the idea was uh, right. coming from that one. Uh, but I think it's it's kind of unfair just to put it into the data centers because the amount of yeah, amount of drives there, amount of solid state hard disks and all, the, all these elements are quite important and they are done with, they are manufactured with rare metals uh, that are on earth. So right. we need to be more mindful whenever we scroll uh, on Instagram or Facebook, whether we need it, right. because it is costing actually energy and uh, resources. So yeah. that is quite uh, important. So maybe just one picture of your dessert. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, do you want to add anything, Tim? Uh, I have my questions answered. Thanks for the enlightenment. Uh, do you want to add anything? Do you have any topics that you want to share a little bit more? Otherwise, I have one more question that uh, will come your way. Um, why don't you go ahead with that question? Okay. okay. So um, one of the one of the personal goals that I've uh, put down myself is to tidy up my information gathering collection structure mm-hmm. okay so i'm i'm trying to use social media and also some blogs to gather information but i'm also hearing or i'm also exposed to too much non-useful information yeah. let me put it that way and i want to tidy that up so the question i'm asking is where are you getting your knowledge from which sources are you using? What mm-hmm. kind of books are you reading? What kind of people are you following? What kind of uh, magazines are you reading? Or are there any uh, scientific studies that are, you are reading or following? That yeah. kind of question. And yeah. I will make notes so you might hear typing noise. Okay. 
Um, I have some great resources at my disposal with people like Terrence Spees, who is our Voltage CTO, the inventor of mm -hmm. format preserving encryption and secure stateless tokenization and um, data scientists at, at my disposal, like Tom Wu, who works with me, you know, so I benefit from working with these people who've been in encryption for 20 plus years, writing scientific papers. And, you know, that's a resource that I'm availed to because I work at Voltage, but they also point me at places um, to go read about encryption. And um, I don't know the names of these websites off the top of my head. Um, we but can I, share later and then we can link it on the yeah, podcast. Definitely. Yeah, that'll be good. Um, so there's definitely cryptography um, sites that I go to that teach you to cryptography and then there are scientific papers around that. Um, I will use the, uh, the Google Scholar. Mm -hmm to pull up, you know, if I'm trying to learn about homomorphic encryption, you know, what's the latest scientific papers on them? And because I have those resources and those data scientists, I can take things I don't understand and say, Terrence, what does this mean? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have the benefit of leaning on the, the industry stars to, to answer questions for me when I come up with things. So, so the idea is surround yourself with uh, the people that uh, the good people, let's put it that way. Absolutely. Okay. okay. If uh, that's it, uh, if you don't want to add anything else, uh, I would like to thank you uh, for your time today. It was lovely to have you in our offices in Amsterdam. It was lovely to see you and meet you in person at last. And um, yeah, good luck and success with thank your you. endeavors within Voltage and also in your personal life. Thank you, Barish. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and to come to the Netherlands and and, and visit a few customers and visit some of your customers as well. So it's been, it's been a real joy and, and thank you for the beautiful weather. <laughs> I didn't arrange that. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Have a nice day. You too. That was Tim Sedlick, the Director of Product Management at OpenText. You're listening to the Portera Connect podcast. That was your host, Barish Kabakli. I'm Walid Siraj. 